What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by Brandon DeCruz. Dude, it's been too long since we've done one of these episodes. I know. You know what's funny? Because we have our own mentorship calls, it doesn't feel like it's been that long. But I just realized that it's been a couple of months since our last podcast together. So I'm looking forward to getting back at it because I always get great feedback and it always leads to like different series and uh, covering topics that are, are quite nuanced. So I'm hoping that the audience gets a ton out of this because that's always my intention with these. Absolutely. And I won't make you give yourself an introduction because again, you've been on the show quite a bit, but I'm excited to dig into what we're going to talk about today, um, which is P ratio or partitioning ratio. So I know for me, this is something that when I first got into the industry, this concept of P ratio was something that made a lot of sense to me. And then since, like there's been a lot of debate within the research and kind of the quote-unquote evidence-based side of the industry as far as like, hey, do we really need to worry about this concept of P ratio or is it kind of irrelevant? So I guess to start things off, could you just explain to us what this P ratio even is? Absolutely. So from like a high-level perspective, the P ratio, aka the partitioning ratio, as you mentioned, refers to how well you partition nutrients into muscle tissue versus fat tissue. So in relation to building muscle, which is most of our goals, this concept describes the ratio of muscle gain to fat gained. So basically, if you know if someone had a high P ratio, it would mean that you're gaining a higher amount of muscle with a small amount of fat gain relatively. Whereas having a low P ratio would mean you're gaining a low amount of muscle with a high amount of fat gained. So when people discuss this topic and use the concepts of having a high and low P ratio, what they mean is that if someone has a high P ratio, they're achieving lean gains, meaning most of the weight they've gained during a surplus is from muscle, while someone with a low P ratio is essentially achieving less lean gains as they're gaining more fat mass as compared to the amount of muscle mass that they're gaining. Absolutely. And I know that's the way I originally learned this was, hey, in general, most men between 10 and 15% body fat approximately are going to have the best P ratio. And I believe the number I heard for women was 20 to 25%. But outside of this range, again, as you said, like for every pound that you put on outside of that body fat percentage range, then we are going to gain exponentially more fat than muscle tissue. Right. So again, what, what you would often hear was, um, and I'm sure you're going to explain to us later on whether you agree or disagree with this, but most men and women should try to, like if your goal is to build muscle, you should probably try to stay within this range. And then to a certain, like once you start to get too fluffy, for example, for a male over about that 15% mark I mentioned before, then you're just going to start getting more fat and you will, and less muscle for every pound gain. So that's what probably makes sense for you to cut back. Um, kind of rambling there, but again, like when I first got into the industry, this was like the, a very common thought process you would hear. So from there, um, and just to relate to some of the listeners probably have heard. So within this, like, what are some common misconceptions that you hear about the P ratio? Yeah, I think this is, this is an important uh, topic to cover in general, because a question that all us coaches get, I know you can relate to this because I get this every day and it's always, should I cut or should I bulk? It's always that question from clients. They want to know, and they often bring up the P ratio. However, most have misinterpreted the P ratio to mean that if you're at a low body fat percentage, you will have a high P ratio, as you, as you mentioned. And the thought process is that if you, you're lean and you're at a low body fat percentage, you'll have a high P ratio and you will tend to gain more muscle, 
But if you're at a higher body fat percentage, you will automatically have a low P ratio and will gain more fat and thus less muscle as a result. So the first issue with this interpretation was the initial research on this P ratio concept was done by Forbes and it was actually done on untrained subjects. So I always try to point that out to people that we can't exactly extrapolate to our clients who have weight training experience, stuff that comes from untrained individuals. And then the other thing is this research also specifically looked at refeeding trials with individuals who were recovering from anorexia and who were severely underweight. And I think that's a big component that the evidence-based crowd has overlooked. They didn't really look into who are the subjects that are being compared. And so in the case of untrained individuals recovering from an eating disorder, they did see a higher P ratio in response to overfeeding than compared to obese individuals when they were overfed. So most of this research, you know, the initial research from Forbes showed that in these individuals, the amount of lean body mass that was added was substantially different. So those who were thin and essentially recovering from an eating disorder gained 60 to 70% of their weight in lean body mass, while those who had obesity only gained 30 to 40% of their weight as lean body mass. So they gained substantially more fat for every pound gained. So we really saw like a 30 to 40% discrepancy between like that lean gains ratio. So this led many to believe that if you're leaner, you will automatically have a higher P ratio compared to if you have a, you're at a higher body fat percentage. But another okay. issue with this misinterpretation of the P ratio is that it confuses the concept of someone who's naturally lean and then someone who's gotten lean by dieting down far past their set point. So if we were to take you know, the P ratio literally, then those as exiting a fat loss phase or a contest prep would be in the best state to put on muscle, which we know isn't the case. And I've actually, we actually specifically covered this on a podcast uh, mm-hmm. that we did together, you know, the whole concept of the body fat overshooting effect and how we are most primed for fat gain following the end of a diet. So we actually have a lower likelihood to gain muscle mass when we're super lean, you know, due to metabolic adaptations and all the things that happen when we diet, then we are to have greater, you know, increases in lean body mass. So the one thing I do think, so those are the misconceptions that have been taken and mis, you know, extrapolated within our industry. And I think that that has led some people to think they have to be a lot leaner than they need to be. So we'll hear some people say, well, should I cut or should I bulk? Or should I do a cut before a bulk? And so that's kind of been taken from the misinterpretation of the research. Now, the one thing that I do think we can take from the early research on this topic is that when it comes to dieting, the P ratio does work in this perspective that if someone starts out at a higher body fat percentage, they will lose more weight from fat than they do lean mass. Yet if someone starts a a diet at a very lean level of body fat, they will have a higher likelihood of losing muscle during a diet. And this is something that has been validated and reinforced in many, like countless lines of research since then. And also something I know that I as a coach can attest to, as I've seen clients that you know, who come to me at much higher starting levels of body fat, and we're able to use their stored body fat for energy, and they're much less likely to lose muscle. And many times, I see them go through body recomposition because we're able to liberate that stored body fat, use it as fuel, and, and still gain muscle throughout the process of losing body fat, so body recomp. But I can't say the same thing as the case with my super lean contest prep competitors who are getting to those essential levels of body fat. So we also see there's, there's also research by Lou that looks at the partitioning between protein and fat during starvation and refeeding, which shows that we each have an inter-individual response to the P ratio based on our natural set point. So for example, if someone was, say, obese most of their life, but got into training and got lean by really restricting themselves calorically, 
this would not change their P ratio. So it's not like they would get lean and then put on more lean mass and less fat mass after the diet as a result. If anything, they'd actually be more predisposed to gaining more body fat due to the body fat overshoot effect, which is why we need to stop labeling someone as having, say, a higher P ratio or a low P ratio potential based on where they're, where they're starting, you know, a building phase instead of focusing on what actually influences our partition ratio and our ability to accrue muscle. So really my focus when clients come to me and they ask me about this concept, and you and I have had this discussion before, it's not about where you're starting at. It's about what can we do to influence your P ratio in the best manner possible? Because there's so many factors that include, they do include body fat percentage, but there's so many other um, you know, influences that impact someone's P ratio and their nutrient partition abilities that we need to focus on more than what this outdated research hypothetically stated. Okay. So it, as a whole, it sounds like basically you're saying, again, like I threw out those numbers of like 10 to 15% for men, 20 to 25% for women, which is again, like the numbers I typically heard. It sounds like what you're saying is, Hey, we should probably disregard that and much more just look at where you're at relative to these main factors that influence the P ratio and your nutrient or your nutrient partitioning. Is that pretty accurate? Absolutely. I'm saying there's not as small of a gap. So what, what really I want to get across to people is you do not need to cut to be able to potentiate lean masking. So it's not like if someone was at 25% body fat as a male or 35% body fat as a female, I wouldn't say we have to automatically drop you to um, 10% a really low level of body fat. For someone going from 25 as a male to 10%, that's going to be way beyond their body fat set point. It's going to be a very long and harsh diet. That's not going to potentiate your gains. Now, there are other reasons as to why we would want to take you from 25% body fat down, but that's more from a metabolic health perspective. And really what I'm trying to say is when we looked at the literature, it's really between, for men, between that 10 and 20% body fat range which is more metabolically healthy as well as conducive for gaining muscle and then Mm -hmm. 20 to 30 with females. So if you're within that range, you're in a safe spot to gain muscle. And then in that case, if you are between that 10 and 20%, let's focus on the influences and the factors that actually influence and impact your partitioning ratio rather than just purely worrying on body fat, because that's only one, um, that's only one factor in the equation. However, if you're outside of that, that's where there would be an argument to make. Let's get you leaner for more of a metabolic health, insulin sensitivity, inflammation reasons, so that you're in a healthier spot to respond better to resistance training. However, it's not like, hey, let's get someone shredded. Let's get someone to a contest-ready condition, whether it be male or female, so they can gain more lean muscle as a result. Nor does the concept of being heavier mean that you won't be able to gain lean mass. You just might put more of a detrimental effect on your health as a result of being in higher body fat percentages. Okay. That makes complete sense. And that really answered my question well. So from there then, what are going to be these main factors that influence P ratio and nutrient partitioning? Okay. So the first one, and this is the one I I really focus on, is training. So resistance training is the most potent nutrient partitioning agent that we can integrate into our daily routine. And this is because resistance training increases both our sensitivity to amino acids, you know, for up to an average of 24 hours after a workout. So this allows for better utilization of dietary protein, as well as higher levels and higher rates of muscle protein synthesis, which is the process by which we build new muscle tissue. And then also training also increases our glucose uptake. So just the act of of going through muscular contractions in and of themselves 
activate what's called GLUT4 translocation, which is an insulin-independent method of controlling your glucose. So GLUT4 is a glucose transporter that is predominantly found in skeletal muscle tissue. And we can call upon and activate this GLUT4 by two two mechanisms. It can either be activated by the uh, insulin receptor where it's then translocated to the cell membrane, or it can be done by training, which allows us to uptake glucose without the need for insulin. So this can be activated through via insulin or independent of insulin. So really that's a huge benefit from a training capacity that it can, you know, essentially lower our need for insulin and still allow us to uptake uh, amino acids as well as glucose. The other, and you know, another factor is your current level of muscle. So essentially muscle acts as a sink for glucose. So basically the more muscle you have, the more glucose you can uptake and the more you can store in muscle glycogen stores rather than fat cells. So if you have more muscle, you're going to partition more of those calories from carbohydrates into muscle glycogen stores than you are, then they're going to be partitioned into fat cells and accumulating fat tissue as a result. And we see in research that our muscles are able to absorb 80 plus percent of the carbs or, or glucose that we have consumed in a meal, which is why training is so important in the blood sugar management process as it allows us to maintain our insulin sensitivity due to the fact that, you know, like I said, with the GLUT4 translocation, we'll need less insulin to uptake and absorb glucose, which thus improves our nutrient partitioning capacity. Another thing is the level of insulin sensitivity. So that's, you know, I've been hitting on insulin sensitivity and nutrient partitioning, and that's a huge part of the equation. And you know, this is something I'm really big on. We've done podcasts on my health-centric uh, coaching model. We've spoken about insulin sensitivity on the podcast itself. So guys, if you are interested in more of a deep dive into this topic, please go back and, and listen to that. But basically, insulin sensitivity refers to how sensitive our tissues are to the effects of insulin. And those with high levels of peripheral insulin sensitivity have the ability to uptake more glucose into their muscle cells so that glucose is partitioned in muscle and stored as muscle glycogen rather than fat tissue. So as I mentioned before, exercise increases insulin sensitivity, especially in the post-training period, and can increase nutrient partitioning by driving the uptake of amino acids and glucose into muscle tissue. So if you're more insulin sensitive, you're going to be more likely to not only be able to build muscle, but also be less likely to store excess body fat. Another factor is your physical activity. So other, you know, I'm talking about outside the gym. So more of our energy flux, more of our knee. Um, you know, physical activity, this could include cardio and aerobic training. This helps to increase nutrient partitioning very similarly to weight training, which it can drive nutrient uptake into muscle rather than having these excess nutrients stored in fat tissue. Another factor, obviously, we have to hit on nutrition. So the size of the surplus we use during a building phase will influence the amount of excess calories we have available to us on a daily basis which will influence how much body fat we gain as compared to how much muscle we put on during any one given period of time. So what a lot of people do, and I see this mistake all the time, is that they think that they need to eat in this massive surplus to gain muscle. And what I always try to get across to people is we cannot force feed muscle growth. And as you get more and more advanced, you will need less and less of a surplus because your, your genetic ceiling for your ability to accrue muscle tissue is lower and thus your rate of gains are slower. So if you take in, say that the body only needs 100 extra calories per day to accrue muscle tissue, if you're in a 500 calorie surplus, you have an extra 400 calories per day that are going to be partitioned towards fat, uh, towards fat accumulation. And it's much easier, just like it's easier to lose fat than it is to gain muscle, it's much easier to gain fat than it is to gain muscle as well. So we have to you know, really manipulate nutrition 
especially based on our current level of body fat and then also our training advancement. So how experienced we are in terms of training. Then another one that the last one that plays a factor is genetics. So, you know, I can't, you know, genetics is not a topic I really love to dive deep on because honestly, it's something that we don't have a huge, you know, uh, control over. However, you know, genetics do play a role in the process as genetics influence very various aspects of our nutrient partitioning. However, you know, I always try to make it clear that there are various, you know, um, lifestyle modifications and behavioral changes we can make to offset some of the effects of less than favorable genetics. So for instance, you know, I've had, and Jeremiah, you and I have talked about this. I've had many clients come to me who were type two diabetic, uh, or had really poor insulin sensitivity due to having two diabetic parents. So that, that really does increase your likelihood of, you know, suffering from pre-diabetes and insulin resistance. They were also in an environment which drove insulin resistance. So they were in um, eating processed foods, they were eating in a, a massive caloric excess and things of that sort. So this really set them up to be more predisposed to those genetic factors. But, you know, by working with them and then modifying their nutrition, their training, their habits around physical activity and their behaviors, we were able to reverse their insulin resistance and improve their insulin sensitivity, which ultimately led to them maintaining a leaner and healthier physique. So I, I do try to get across, yes, genetics are not, you know, directly within our control. The amount of muscle that you gain or, you know, some of the genetic predispositions towards health uh, parameters or negative health parameters are not 100% within your control. However, there are so many things that we can modify, we can alter, and that we can improve upon to improve upon those states. So that's like the last, that's why I always leave genetics to last on any, you know, any category that I'm trying to influence, because I believe in, in focusing on what's in our control and, you know, not getting too hung up on things that are outside of our control, you know? Absolutely. No, I love that, man. As you said, we have training, muscle mass, insulin sensitivity, physical activity, and the size of your surplus. And then we have genetics, right? But five out of those six things are very much under your control, which I think is a very empowering thing for a lot of people to hear. Um, my question for you is, is your body fat percentage in and of itself going to affect your nutrient partitioning? 100%. So this is where people do discuss body fat levels, and this was really where the P ratio started getting applied, it does play a massive impact here. But right. how it was extrapolated was it was a misinterpretation. So the old P ratio concept was that if you were at low percentage of body fat, it automatically led to leaner gains. So you gain more muscle because you started out leaner, whereas if you were at a higher levels of body fat, they said you would gain less muscle and gain more body fat. And they almost made it seem that it was just body fat dependent. Whereas, like I, I mentioned before, think about all the factors I just went through. You know, yes, they influence your body fat percentage, but there's so many other factors. Someone could start out lean, but not have the appropriate training stimulus. So they're not driving their nutrient partitioning and they're not accruing muscle tissue. Or someone could have the greatest, you know, stimulus. They could have a very low percentage of body fat, but they underconsume protein. So they don't have, you know, the right rates of muscle protein synthesis. They're not going to drive an increase in muscle tissue, despite the fact that they're lean and they might gain more fat because they're taking in more calories overall from other macronutrients such as fat or carbs, and they're under consuming protein. And we do see that in overfeeding right. studies. You know, there's overfeeding studies where they put people between 15 and 70% above their um, caloric needs or maintenance calories from different percentages of protein. And in one trial by Bray, they looked at, I believe it was 5%, 15%, and 25%. And in the 15 and 25% overfeeding groups, in terms of their protein content, 
they both gained more lean body mass. They all gained the same amount of weight, but the proportion, so their P ratio in the 25% protein group was much better. They had a much higher P ratio. They gained a much higher percentage of lean body mass than they did fat mass as compared to the 5% protein group. And guess what? These guys weren't resistance trained. So imagine what we put when we put the combination of resistance training plus adequate protein intake, and that's what really does maximize that P ratio. But overall, yes, body fat does affect things. So overall, being at a healthy and comfortable body fat percentage is important for maintaining adequate nutrient partitioning as body fat level is closely tied with both insulin sensitivity and your nutrition. And it's important to realize that we want to be at a healthy body fat level as being too low or too high in body fat will negatively affect insulin sensitivity. So this is something a lot of people know that if you're at a high level of body fat, that it does uh, cause a lack of insulin sensitivity. But a lot of people don't realize that being very, very lean, and this is something we covered in the body fat overshooting um, you know, episode, if you get really lean, such as in the case of like a contest level bodybuilder, you know, if you're at 5% body fat, you're going to see increases in insulin sensitivity, both at the level of the muscle, but also at the level of the fat cell, because you've essentially depleted your fat cells with most of their energy. So just like your muscles sensitized to insulin, so are your fat cells. So they're more receptive to soaking up and restoring nutrients and an effort to refill those fat stores, because that's an evolutionary mechanism. We want to be, you know, we want to enhance survival rates. Right. So when you start to increase calories, especially going into a building phase, if you're super lean and you go right outside, you know, that's why I'm a big fan of nutritional periodization, utilizing reverse dieting phases, maintenance phases, and really going through a phasic approach to nutrition. However, if you went right from a contest prepper, from a dieting phase, and you went right into a building phase and you went into a calorie surplus from being in a deficit, you're going to be sensitized in terms of your fat cells and you're going to put on more adipose tissue. However, on the flip side of that, if you gain too much body fat, especially if you gain visceral tissue or visceral fat, which is the fat that's stored around your organs, you're going to see a rapid decline in insulin sensitivity and an increase in insulin resistance. And we have research by Kelly et al. that has shown that we start to see increases in visceral fat gain which causes drastic reductions in insulin sensitivity when males get at or above 20% body fat and females get above 30%. But often I've seen individuals at body fat percentages that were a few percent lower than this who are suffering from insulin resistance due to not having their nutrition, their physical activity levels, their stress management, or even stuff like their sleep quality dialed in. So they're suffering the effects of insulin resistance, although they were at a lower body fat percentage, which is something I've had them track not only through blood glucose readings, both fasted and postprandially, but also in their blood work through metrics like their HbA1c and fasting insulin. So what we have to realize is oftentimes with the P ratio, a lot of these guys in the evidence-based scene, they'll just point out to the fact that you know, um, at 20% body fat, you know, that's where we should call it quits. You can go higher than that because you could still gain muscle. But if you're already getting insulin resistant at 18% body fat, you're already impairing right. your nutrient partitioning abilities. You're already having, you know, um, negative effects on your health. And even for instance, Jeremiah, you know, you and I have been tracking your, your fasted readings. And at yes. one point they were, they were elevated and you're a lean, healthy guy, you're active. And that's stuff that we had to look at more of the lifestyle components because right. it wasn't pairing nutrient partitioning. So it's like, you know, a lot of times these, you know, and I don't want to call anyone out with this, but really we have to take it from, there's both the research and then there's the anecdotal experience with clients. And I'll tell you from my perspective, I've coached over a thousand people and I've seen people that look lean and look healthy and they're not. And, and that's really what I try to get across to people is 
your your a healthy body is a responsive body, but it's not just the way you look. It's also your insides. That's why I'm always constantly going through blood work and looking at biofeedback and looking at biomarkers such as resting heart rate, fasted glucose, blood pressure, all these things, because I've seen people that look great on the outside. However, they're hitting these bottlenecks within their training, within their ability to make progress. They've been stuck at the same level. And when I peel back the layers of the onion, it's the fact that they're insulin resistant. And anytime they go into a surplus, they start you know, storing fat. So they basically have to stay at maintenance or in a deficit year round. So then not only are they insulin resistant whenever they go into a slight surplus, but they're also living their life in a deficit just to mitigate some of those issues. And the issue with that is they have poor hormonal profiles as a result. So it's limiting their muscle gain. So it's like for every gimme, there's a gotcha. And we have to take that into consideration. And we can't look at, you know, really a big thing is we, and what I'm trying to get across here is we can't look at things in silos. We can't just say, all right, well, in some of this research, it shows that you know, it isn't until 20% body fat that you start hitting insulin resistance because we have to consider the individual first and foremost. And then also, we can't just make these broad blanket prescriptions where everyone should be able to get to this percentage of body fat because if they're suffering health effects, it's going to limit their ability to gain muscle. It might not be in the 15 guys that they, they put into a trial in, in one case study, but I'll tell you, working with thousands of people, that there are genetically predis- predispositions towards certain things. And we need to focus on that before we get, we just go based off the research. We have to combine what's in the clinical research, not only from like a muscle building perspective, but from health research as well, because we have a lot more of that that's much more well funded than sports nutrition research. And then also what we're seeing with our clients. We have to put that all together to really deliver the best coaching and the best guidance to those that we work with, because it doesn't, if the information that's presented in a research study isn't applicable to the person that's standing in front of you that you work with, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's about getting that person to their best body composition outcomes in the best state of health possible. Absolutely. And that's, that's such a good explanation of that. I think that's something that isn't very clearly explained typically when you hear people discuss this topic. Um, I have a couple questions for you to follow up with what we just discussed there. So first, one thing I'll hear a lot of people say in this space is, okay, so these people with the highest levels on the fat-free mass index or FFMI, like a college football player, or also you'll hear sumo wrestlers a lot. So they have super high levels of body fat. So that must mean that their ability to gain muscle isn't impaired by body fat because they also have a tremendous amount of muscle. And again, most often here you'll hear like, think like a college or NFL lineman or like a sumo wrestler who, again, Mm -hmm. they are obese or they have a lot of body fat, but again, they have so much muscle tissue on your frame, right? So can we really say like with these examples that um, their ability to put on muscle tissue is still impaired by body fat? What are your thoughts on that? All right. So I'm going to answer your question and then I want to go, I'm going to go in depth on the topic. So do I think that having a high percentage of body fat directly impairs their ability to gain muscle? No. However, indirectly a hundred percent. And I'll go into why. And that's a big thing. When people bring up this argument or I've heard other professionals within the space say, well, they give the example. So they want to cite research first and foremost, but then they'll give the anecdotal experience where they'll say, well, I lived with a kid in college that was a college lineman and he had the highest you know, level of muscle and strength that I've ever seen, but he had 30% body fat or 25% body fat. And that's where, you know, I lived with, you know, football team for multiple years when I was at college. Um, so I've seen that firsthand and I will say they are right in some capacity. So, you know, what I'm really 
really when I think about this and I discuss this with other people, I always point this out. Although training regularly and building muscle helps to increase insulin sensitivity, having high levels of muscle mass alone does not protect us against the effects of accumulating body fat from being in a calorie surplus for a prolonged period of time. So that's the first thing everyone out there has to realize. You are not going to undo the metabolic health effects of being in a prolonged surplus and having accumulated high levels of body fat by just having muscle mass alone. And that's where when speaking about the P ratio, many will bring up that example like you did. And they'll say that those with the highest levels of FFMI uh, tend to be college football players, NFL players, uh, sumo wrestlers. And that's their, you know, their quote unquote evidence that their high amounts of body fat don't seem to limit their ability to gain muscle. But whenever they do bring this topic up, no one talks about the metabolic health of these individuals, you know, and the downsides that getting to this level of body fat has on their health, regardless of the lean mass that they have. And as you know, I always say a healthy body is a responsive body. And I covered this in uh, the podcast we did on um, our health, my health coach uh, centric coaching model. As I'm always looking at a client's health while I work to improve their body composition, which is something I believe many other coaches overlook, which is why very few people not only touch on this topic, but they're not even aware of it. So, you know, that's where, you know, I've heard this example and I actually dove into the research on this topic specifically because I wanted to say, all right, well, is muscle going to protect this? Are those examples? And now, even if they, they did, and I'm going to prove to you that they don't, however, we would have to also chuck up genetics. Those that are at the collegiate level and, you know, whether it's collegiate or professional, and I lived with some of these individuals, I had friends that went to the NFL or Arena Football League. These are guys at the upper echelon of genetics. So we have to take that into consideration. Their ability and their propensity to put on muscle is much higher than most of ours and most of the clients that we're working with. So that's the first caveat. However, even in that case, we're, you're going to see that the metabolic health side effects of this accumulated body fat is, is not worth it. So as far as the metabolic health of athletes go, we have multiple studies that examine this. So study, a uh, 2009 study by Borchertz et al. looked at college offensive and defensive linemen at Oklahoma State who had high levels of fat-free mass and also high levels of body fat. And these researchers analyzed their prevalence for having insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, both of which are conditions that will compromise your health, longevity, and training, as well as your body composition outcomes long-term. And the results of this study showed that Despite the fact that these individuals were highly muscular and very active uh, with both their sport and with training, over 42% of them had metabolic syndrome and 58% of them had insulin resistance by the age of 19. So the researchers, and I took this statement right from there, um, right from the study itself, let me pull it up. Uh, the researchers stated that offensive and defensive linemen are at a significantly increased risk of insulin resistance and the metabolic syndrome compared with other position players. So despite having higher levels of muscle than their other teammates, they were suffering the health effects due to having higher levels of body fat. Then another study looked at the University of Tennessee and found that of the 12 players that had metabolic syndrome, there were, they were all linemen who had 19.5% or more body fat. And then we also have researchers comparing heavyweight judo and football players that shows that those who were under 19.4% body fat had better metabolic health markers like fasting glucose, fasting insulin, and triglycerides than those whose body fat were between 22 and 24%. And then if you actually look at the data, so I, this I had to really go through the ringer to get, but if you look in the data on sumo wrestlers, you'll see that their metabolic health is much better. 
at their high level of body fat than a sedentary control. So someone at the same body fat percentage, that's just sedentary and lifestyle, but consider the fact that they're at about stage two um, obesity. But as soon as they stop their sport, whether that be due to injury, lack of time or interest, or even just due to taking time off from training, they're almost immediately diabetic and suffering from metabolic syndrome. So what they showed in a lot of this research was the only thing that is holding off metabolic disease is their extremely high training volume and multiple training sessions per day. Um, but that's not something that many can keep up long-term from both like a joint and connective tissue perspective, but also for a, from a lifestyle perspective. So despite muscle being great for overall health, at a certain point, once you get to a higher body fat range, too much adipose tissue will impair your metabolic health and function. And honestly, Jeremiah, I wish I could sit here and say that muscle is all that matters, uh, you know, both from a body composition and health perspective, as I'm a health coach and body transformation coach, I get paid. And, you know, this is my career. I love building muscle. I love resistance training. I love the health effects that come with it. But we have to be objective about this and realize there are deleterious effects to accumulating excess body fat, which is why I don't agree with those in this industry who are now claiming that because getting to higher body fat levels doesn't impair your P ratio or your ability to gain muscle, that there isn't a need to keep body fat more in check during a building phase. Because although it may not directly impair muscle gain outcomes, it does impair your health outcomes, which will have downstream effects on how our clients feel, how they perform, how they sleep, how they um, function, how they look. And so as a coach, first and foremost, I'm more focused on getting my clients results in terms of helping them build as much muscle as possible with as little excess fat gain so that we can improve you know, their body composition. We can have them consistently performing well in the gym because they have both great muscular and aerobic fitness, all while maintaining or even improving their metabolic and internal health so that they not only look good on the outside, but they feel good internally, which will lead to them living a better life in the gym and out of it. So I, I really... You know, I wish people would consider all aspects. And I'm always looking at more of an all-encompassing viewpoint because we can't just say, all right, don't, you know, disregard, you know, P ratio has been disproven. Um, you can build greater, you can build just as much muscle at higher body fat percentages. So don't worry how fat you get. Like I've heard some guys in the space say, oh, don't worry about, you know, you can get to 25, 30%, but they're not talking about the health effects of that. And it's like, I just right. find that when, when we're educators, we're coaches or especially researchers, when you put something out and you have a large amount of credibility behind you, we have a responsibility. So my whole thing is the first thing, and we've spoken about this on our mentorship calls, the first thing as a coach, especially, and, and that's who I am. I'm not a researcher. I'm a coach first and foremost. The first thing for my clients is do no harm. And that's the thing. When I put out information, it's not only research-backed, evidence-based, and, and also you know tested in the trenches, but it's also stuff that isn't going to hurt someone. It's not going to have deleterious effects. So I'm not going to tell my clients, even if they can get to higher amounts of body fat and still gain muscle, I'm not going to tell them it's healthy because it's not. Absolutely, man. I love that. And you're right. It's just very, it's very short-sighted, right? We can look at it as, okay, well, you can probably add just as much muscle, even if your body fat is beyond a specific point. But again, we have to look at, okay, even like the college football players that you're referencing, Okay, so where are they at in five years? Where are they at 10 years? What's their health like? Are they still this, like, okay, he's got a lot of body fat, but he's jacked and his health is great? Or is it like, hey, okay, now health is starting to rapidly decline? Again, it's just a little bit too short sighted. Absolutely. And here's the thing so these guys were 19 years old in the Oklahoma trial. So we don't know where they were at at 25, but I'll tell you, I lived with college football players and I do have, unfortunately, friends that do have metabolic syndrome. And, and this is stuff that impairs people's lifespan. And it's not only, 
now impairing their body composition. Yes, they've gotten out of shape and they're even, they've progressed more and more and they've accumulated more and more body fat because at the time their coaches were pushing them to get to a certain level of muscle mass and strength. So it was that dirty bulking era that we've all been through. But it was the best. Most, yeah, most of us have made that mistake and realized listen, going for a leaner gain approach and taking more of a moderate surplus and really maximizing as much muscle gain and minimizing as much fat you know, uh, gain as possible is the best way to go because not only does it help, help with our health outcomes, but also ultimately the majority of people that come to us, Jeremiah, and myself, my own goal, and I'm, I'm sure the same can be said for you, is to improve our body composition. And ultimately, that includes getting more muscular and being lean, being lean and healthy as well. So my whole thing is, why am I going to put on excess amounts of body fat on a client and get them to 25 or 30% or for a female, 35 or 40% when we're going to ultimately have to diet that off? And that's going to require a much more aggressive and a much lengthier deficit where they're going to be more predisposed to losing body fat due to how long and how you know severe of a deficit we're going to have to put them in. So it's my whole thing is don't just think about what can be accomplished in 12 weeks, but think about 12 months. Think about years down the road. What can you do with this client? And you know how are we going to set them up for success long term? It's not just about let's maximize scale weight. You know whether it be you know during a gaining phase, let's get as many pounds on the scale as possible. No, let's maximize and get. Let's focus on quality over quantity. Absolutely. No, we're very in alignment there. So another follow-up question I had for you relative to body fat. So a lot of this discussion around P ratio is going to be on body fat and how it impacts your hormones and levels of inflammation. Can you kind of explain to us what the relationship between body fat and hormones and inflammation even is? Yeah, absolutely. So this is an interesting one because um, there are a lot of people that they kind of just throw out information, especially when it comes to hormones and that's really not their specialty. And so I'll tell you both from my own research that I've done personally, but I also, I have looked at hundreds upon hundreds of blood work. And that's one thing that I know that some of these guys within the space, that's just not within their coaching. They don't coach in that manner. And they've you know mentioned on numerous podcasts or in articles that they don't look at blood work. So I'm going to share what I see in the research, but also what I've seen through my own anecdotal experience, because I do look at hormone profiles and I do very extensive lab work with my clients um, because I want to check certain things. I want to see how a diet impacts their hormonal profiles. And I also want to see how being in a surplus for an extended period of time or going to upper levels of body fat, how is that impacting their hormones? Is that improving that? Because that's something that we often hear at higher levels of body fat that's actually going to improve your hormone profile. So in terms of testosterone, what research shows is between 10 to 12% body fat is where we see men's natural testosterone levels optimized. Yet these levels will decline if you go too far below or above this body fat percentage level. And then I'll tell you from my own coaching experience that I've seen an improvement in some of my male uh, clients' test levels on blood work during a fat loss phase. When I've gotten them from, say, the 20 plus percent into you know body fat into the teens. And this is something that many would find counterintuitive um, because many people, and I've spoken about this highly, about the fact that metabolic adaptations uh, cause a decrease in sex hormones, but this doesn't apply to those with higher levels of adiposity. So if you're above 20% body fat, the metabolic adaptation side of downregulating sex hormones, unless you're in a really harsh deficit and barely eating anything, so you're in a state of low energy availability, it's not going to apply to you. Um, we actually see that those with higher levels of adiposity, um, both you know, in my own experience, but we also see it in countless signs of research, that when those with higher body fat percentage levels lose body fat, their hormone profiles improve 
until they get down to very low levels of body fat, where then metabolic adaptations start to impact their sex hormone production. However, this generally doesn't happen until a male gets around 8 to 10% body fat and a female gets below 20%. So we have to keep it in mind, yes, we talked about metabolic adaptations, but often when even myself, and I've done 10 plus podcasts on this topic, I've spoken about this in depth because it is something that I'm very interested in. However, we have to realize that we're usually speaking to a very uh, niche demographic. It's healthy people. Most of the you know people that I work with are between 10 to 15% body fat. So when I do put them into deficit and we're looking to lose body fat, whether it be for a contest or a photo shoot or a vacation or a wedding, we're getting them into low levels of body fat where yes, their hormones are impacted. And I will tell you, I've seen that on blood work and that's one thing that I addressed during a reverse dieting phase. However, that doesn't happen when you're at higher levels of body fat. And I've worked with plenty of clients between the, 10, the 20 and 30% body fat range for men and 30 to say 38 or 40% body fat with women. And I see you know, better hormone profiles when they do get leaner. So the issue with accruing extra body fat is it causes essentially like a negative feedback loop with your hormones where body fat impacts hormones and then their hormones then impact their body fat accumulation. So for instance, having higher levels of body fat will result in lower testosterone levels as you will be more likely to convert more of your testosterone into estrogen via the aromatase enzyme, which actually is producing fat cells. So the more fat you have, it's almost like leptin, very similarly. The more fat you have, the more leptin you produce, but also the more aromatase enzymes. So the more, the higher the likelihood of conversion of that testosterone into estrogen. And that's why we see at higher levels of body fat, some people uh, develop gynecomastia, but also they have more water retention and that's somewhat estrogen related. And also having lower testosterone levels will then leave you more predisposed to gaining visceral adipose tissue. And the fact that if you do add a visceral adipose tissue, it'll lead to higher levels of inflammatory cytokines being released because fat is inflammatory, is an inflammatory organ which thus reduces testosterone levels all the more. So when you have excess levels of inflammation, it actually lowers your hormone levels because your body is essentially prioritizing fighting off inflammatory cytokines and the whole process of, of repairing inflammation than it is prioritizing reproductive uh, sex hormone production. And so the problem with having low test levels as a result of all these things and, and directly as a result of accumulating body fat is that it will actually lower your ability to partition nutrients to muscle. So you'll be more likely to store excess nutrients in fat and gain more fat tissue. So as you can see, it kind of becomes like this vicious cycle. So mm -hmm. basically as body fat increases and test levels decrease, inflammation increases, which all, you know, all in all affect body comp and health. However, there's other effects that inflammation play into the P ratio and into nutrient partitioning because Chronic inflammation is associated with both body fat and weight gain as, like I mentioned, body fat is an inherently inflammatory tissue. So the more you gain, the more likely you are to increase your levels of inflammation. And we directly have research on this. So research by Orsada et al. pointed out that at higher levels of body fat, which was categorized as over 20% for men and 30% for women, we start seeing higher levels of visceral fat gain which causes an increase in inflammatory cytokines. So this resulted in increased levels of IL-6 and TRP, which are both inflammatory markers. And I'll tell you that from my own experience, I track some of these metrics. Like I get uh, sensitive uh, CRP on blood work with clients and those that have higher levels of body fat generally have higher CRP levels. Whereas when I have like lean individuals that are active, I very rarely see, you know, uh, an inflamed, you know, these inflammatory markers raised unless they're extremely stressed out and they have high levels of oxidative stress 
And that's usually very case specific, but it's a lot rarer. And then this study also showed that high levels of chronic inflammation can actually lead to muscle mass loss due to the fact that this high of a level of inflammation can impair the muscle repair and growth processes. So what we have to realize is that, you know, inflammation, and this is something I've, I've touched on with you before, is inflammation is kind of like the scapegoat term in our industry. And people, you know, it's like the boogeyman. But what we have to realize is that we want acute inflammation for training. And inflammation is kind of like uh, cortisol. Uh, you need some, but you don't want an excessive amount. So it's almost like something you want to keep in a Goldilocks range because inflammation is needed to build muscle as muscle damage in- induces an acute inflammatory response, which signals to the body that there's a need for repair to that damaged muscle tissue. But if we have excess systemic inflammation, not acute inflammation, um, which can be caused by high body fat levels, this will actually impair the muscle growth signaling process. So this will downregulate mTOR, this will downregulate muscle protein synthesis, and this will uh, create an inflammatory state in the body where it's too hard to repair and there's excess DOMS and there's excess soreness and, and accumulation of metabolic byproducts that you're not going to recover from. So it's going to impair your ability to recover from training as well as to actually adapt to that training. So remember, we aren't, you know, we are what we can recover and adapt to. It's not just about the training. It's about the entire recovery process and the ability to actually make gains from that. And having high levels of body fat is going to impair you know, that process via inflammation. Absolutely. So really, it sounds like in a nutshell, as far as hormones go, there is definitely a range, right? Too high with our body fat and we'll probably will potentially create like these negative feedback loops where we're more likely to put on more body fat. But again, like, as you mentioned, also don't think, okay, so like getting stage ready is going to put your hormones in the best place possible, right? Like you don't like get ready for a bodybuilding show to get super healthy, right? So there's very much a range where we have enough fat where we're healthy and again, hormones are an optimal place, but we don't want to either be too high or too low. And then again, like, as you said, inflammation isn't the boogeyman it's made out to be. But typically, when we have more body fat, we are going to have higher levels of chronic inflammation. Is that pretty accurate? Absolutely. So as with everything, I know this guy's, this might sound a little bit cliche, but with many things in life, especially for training, for optimizing body composition, we kind of want to shoot for a sweet spot. We don't want things too low and we don't want things too high. And I think that can be said about so many things within nutrition. So for instance, even from a nutritional perspective, we don't want any of the macros too low or too high. So we don't want protein so high that it impairs digestion, but we don't want it so low that we can't recover from training and properly stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Carbohydrates, we don't want them so high that we're constantly distended or we're suffering from insulin resistance, but we don't want them so low that it impairs our training uh, you know, capacity. And, and same thing with fats. We don't want fats so high that they're readily stored as fat tissue. But we don't want them so low that we can't absorb our fat-soluble vitamins or we can't, um, you know, we don't have the precursors for cholesterol production for sex hormone production. So with as with many things, and I know this isn't sexy, but it's the moderate zone. It's it's the Goldilocks zone. It's finding uh, the best of, of the middle ground where your body is more in its homeostatic point. It's not too far outside the realms of its uh, homeostasis or its baseline where you're going to get the best condition. So it's the same thing we can relate it to dieting. You know, taking too slow and um, modest of a surplus um, is going to lead with, you know, you having to diet for a really prolonged period of time. But if you take a super aggressive deficit, if you don't have it psychologically or you're not in the right mindset for that or you don't have great experience with dieting, you don't have a good relationship with food, that aggressive deficit might get you results for a few weeks, but it's it's 
bounder, it's more likely to backfire on you and for you to go through that body fat overshooting as well as to kind of rebound out of that. So it's, it's staying away from the extremes. Don't go too low on body fat percentage. Don't go too high. Don't fear inflammation, but don't put yourself in a position where you're gaining excess body fat and increasing your level of systemic inflammation. We want to keep the inflammatory process to being an acute process, which happens around the training bout, which is necessary to build tissue. But outside of that, we don't want to be creating excess stress and inflammation. Such interesting stuff. Um, and then what other, I know on our team call today, just an interesting point I wanted to bring up. We were discussing uh, one of our coaches, friends who a trainer she was working with, her, uh, her CRP was high and inflammation was high. And so from that, he dictated, hey, because of this, your body's under too much stress. We actually need a reverse diet. And like they gained another 25 pounds, which is probably going to then yield the opposite effect of what they wanted. I just thought that was an interesting point relevant to what we discussed today, but not super relevant to this podcast. So um, <laughs> anyways, to bring, to bring it back to this topic of P ratio, um, can you kind of give us some application then as far as how you would approach a building phase? from a training and nutrition perspective to get absolutely as much as possible out of that while still keeping your P ratio in a good place. Absolutely. So this is the most important part. It's not, you know, I go into the research, I, I combine both what is said in the research, but also with my, my anecdotal experience. But ultimately, much of what I do from a coaching perspective is based on the results I've seen and the feedback that I've gotten through clients and, and the results I've been able to attain. Because you know, ultimately, the majority of clients I work with are interested in improving their body composition, which is most effectively done by going through cyclical periods where we enter a building phase and focus on maximizing their muscle mass accrual and limiting their fat gain in the process until we then transition into a fat loss phase or say like a mini cut where we'll focus on dropping body fat and getting lean while maintaining as much muscle as possible. However, despite the different phases I may use with them, the goal is always to keep them healthy through every phase so that they can look good, they can feel good, they perform well, and they recover properly. So with each client that I work with, there are various factors which will determine their physique progress, um, some of which are within our control, as I mentioned before, and some that aren't. So the variables that are outside of my control as a coach and also outside of their control as a client, is their genetics. So I don't worry about this in particular. However, there are many factors that will influence what their physiques look like that are within our control, and that's what I really focus on. So the first thing when it comes to a building phase, maximizing a building phase, and also taking into consideration the P ratio as well as their nutrient partitioning, which are all things that we went over, is their current level of body composition. And this is where the P ratio comes in as a coach can help set an appropriate rate of gain to ensure that their client puts on lean mass and aren't in such a large surplus that they're gaining excess fat tissue. And this is where we may want to keep a client within a certain body fat percentage range to optimize performance and body composition outcomes. Now, this is something that I'll give some practical applications later, some more generic, but me personally, when working with clients, I'm looking at what was their body, what is their body fat settling point? So what is the range in which they can comfortably maintain without being, you know, really um, restricting themselves calorically or doing excess cardio or any of those things? So at their baseline level of activity of training and at maintenance calories, what is a comfortable body fat percentage range that they maintain? And then I try to keep them within that. For some, they're much leaner than others. For some of my clients, it's between 8 to 12% body fat that they maintain 
And that's where I'll say, all right, well, let's go up to the, the upper end of that range because I want to maximize your hormone production and everything else. So I'm going to keep you more of that 12% range. But there's some individuals that it's they're at it's it's a range of 12 to 15%. So that's where we'll, we'll more so uh, keep them. And we might only get up to 18% body fat at the end of their building phase. But it's going to be person dependent. Um, the other thing is nutrition. And this is the number one lever that I use to ensure that a client's body fat levels are, remain in check and that their P ratio isn't skewing towards more fat accrual than muscle gain. And this can be done by setting an appropriate surplus for a client and monitoring their body composition changes through weekly um, photos, as well as tracking their scale weight progress to see the rate of gain that this surplus is directly yielding. So it's not enough for me. Like, you know, it's not like I set it and forget it and I put them in a surplus of 250 calories. It's never like that because what's 250 calories for one client might really yield 350 calories for them. And for another client, it might yield 150. And what I mean by that is we know that metabolic adaptations work on both sides of the equation. And there are people that when you increase their calories, their meat levels increase and their energy expenditure increases as well. But at the same time, there are certain individuals that they actually downregulate expenditure. So what ends up happening is when they have, and these are the individuals, and I'll tell you from experience that, these are the individuals, when they have more food, they feel more lethargic. They feel more sluggish. So they move less. So then their, their expenditure area is less. So that's what I mean by like, you know, 250 calories of a surplus is not 250 calories of a surplus. It's never what it is on paper. And we have to always consider that there are two sides of this energy balance equation. They're like a teeter-totter. So it's it's never that we're, we're nailing it. And that's where assessing things as a coach comes into play. It's never a set and forget, hey, I put them in a 10% surplus or I put them at a 250 calorie surplus. It's always, let's first set something that we I think is reasonable based on their biofeedback and my experience with that client. And then let's monitor things. And then with that, I'll generally shoot for a rate of gain between 0.25 and 0.5% of body weight gain per week with clients based on both their level of experience, but also the level of body fat that we start their building phase at. So for example, if someone's an advanced trainee, I'll take a slower rate of uh, weekly rate of gain. Whereas if they're newer, we can afford to take a quicker rate of gain as their ceiling for building muscle is much higher because they've built less muscle throughout their their training uh, career. But also if I have someone starting a building phase at the end of say like a photo shoot prep or a dieting phase or a contest prep phase, we can afford to use a higher rate of gain initially, and then what I'll do is I'll slow it down or I'll lower it, whereas if a client starts a gaining phase, say, at 15% body fat, I'm going to take a slower weekly rate of gain since the beginning. The next thing I look at is their training stimulus. So the training stimulus that I program and provide my clients with will un, you know, undoubtedly impact their rate of muscular development. And this is something that we can manipulate within a building phase, especially to target weak muscle groups. So this is where I'll specifically use what I call a specialization phase or specialization cycle with a client, and I'll allocate more of their weekly volume budget to a specific one or two body parts we're looking to bring up to improve the look of their physique. And this, I find this really beneficial during a building phase because we have extra calories, where sometimes how I'll... I'll utilize the calorie allotment, I'll do a calorie cycle where I'll actually utilize higher days on their weak body part days. So say that we're, we're doing a chest and back specialization. I've raised their training frequency on chest and back to three times a week to allocate more volume uh, per week. So we can get in more productive volume over the course of the week. And on those three days, I might have them run a high day where I increase their calories, mostly around the peri-workout window. It's not only fuel, the training, but also fuel recovery. So we can allocate not only more of their calories, that calorie budget, but more of their weekly training budget for those days. 
The next thing I'm looking at and I'm trying to leverage is recoverability. So recovery is one aspect that I focus on heavily with my clients as we can honestly only train as hard and adapt as well as we can recover. So if you're not focusing on maximizing recovery, you're going to limit your ability to adapt to your training, which will thus limit your ability to build muscle from that training. So in order to improve a client's recovery, I'm focusing heavily on optimizing their nutrition, their stress management, and sleep quality, along with how I periodize their training and also how I implement both auto-regulation and deloads within their programming, which plays a large role in recovery optimization. So I use a lot of auto-regulatory techniques. Anyone that works with me knows that I never utilize like a set and forget um, progression method. So it's never like automatically, you know, increasing volume per week. Uh, Everything is done week to week. So sometimes, you know, my clients, when they initially start out with me, they're so used to almost like an algorithmic coach where, you know, they'll start at this amount of sets per week, the first week of the mesocycle and the end week five or week six automatically at this amount of volume per body part. And they have a, a deload and it's, you know, a six to one paradigm or a four to one paradigm. And I really do things based off biofeedback. I'm checking multiple parameters. I'm tracking biomarkers and and also their subjective and objective biofeedback. I'm taking it week by week. And there's some weeks that I might titrate things up. I might hold, there's other weeks I might hold it. Some weeks they need a, um, you know, an auto-regulated deload, like more so a reactive deload. And I might do that on just one body part. I might just throw in a, you know, a few days at, you know, active recovery sessions or lowered volume, or even I'll, I'll manipulate their uh, perceived effort, you know, their RP or their RRR. So these are things that it's really paying really close attention to a client's bio-individuality, taking into consideration that we can't predict anything in advance. I've been working as a coach for almost 10 years at this point. And I'll tell you, there's guys I've been working with for years. And I, I know, you know, deep down, I have this feeling or this inclination as to how they're going to respond, but I never allow that to cloud my judgment and, and set things way in advance. I'll always have a plan, but it's always subject to change. And the last thing I want to hit on is that although paying attention to the P ratio and shooting for a lower level of body fat accrual with my clients can be helpful and is something that I use to extend the amount of time that we're able to keep them in a building phase and have it be productive towards accruing muscle mass, no phase can or should last forever. And so this is one thing I'm huge on. I'm big on nutritional periodization as eventually every phase has to come to an end. And that can be whether it's due to physiological reasons or psychological reasons. Um, So we always, as coaches, we need to have other phases we can transition a client to so that we can shift focuses, mitigate some of the detriments of a previous phase and work on either a new adaptation or body comp goal. So even when we do a building phase perfectly, and I've kept them in a sweet spot body fat uh, level wise, there gets to a point where a client might have been in a surplus for so long that they're starting to lose their appetite, they're losing interest, or they're starting to have GI issues from eating constantly. Or some people just get plain bored with like the eating and being in a surplus for so long uh, and working towards that similar goal of gaining muscle. And they want to switch to getting leaner, you know, for a particular goal, whether that be the stage or a photo shoot or an event they have coming up or the summer. And so this is where as a coach, I have a variety of phases that I'll transition a client to, to focus, you know, uh, you know, following that building phase to either reverse some of the things that were experienced during the building phase, like addressing their digestion or getting their appetite back or increasing their insulin sensitivity, or just shifting our focus to a no goal, like getting them lean. 
um, while making sure that we maintain the new muscle we added through the building process. So it's important to realize you can have the perfect building phase, but this is not, nothing is set in stone. It's nothing that we're going to run forever. There needs to be periodization within training, but also in nutrition. And that's one thing that it's starting to get more light to it. But I feel like we had a lot of people within the space within the last five, 10 years that talked, you know, spoke about training periodization, but they kind of overlooked the periodization aspect of nutrition. And that's one thing I'm big on. It's, you know, sometimes I hear about, you know, competitors and they'll go into a year to two year off season gaming phase. And that's great, but you should be transitioning in and out, especially for gen pop clients. So I want to make that clear. We can nail this, we can maximize this, but there needs to be other phases. We always have to be looking ahead. What is your goal? Not only to the end of this phase, not only six months from now, but the next phase and the next phase and always looking ahead to be able to potentiate things so that we stay focused on the goal of now, but we're doing things on the back end that are going to help potentiate the results you want later on in the future. Absolutely, man. And as a coach as well, I think it's so important for you to be looking at the bigger picture because I know it's so easy and something I struggled with when I first started coaching was how it's so easy to just get lost in the week to week. We're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing. Be it like you're in a fat loss phase or a building phase. Um, more common in a building phase, but it's so easy to just get lost in the week to week without taking the time to look at like, okay, what is the bigger picture here? Where do we need to be in six months? Like what, how is what we're doing currently going to impact that? Um, so I think just looking at that larger scale, like a year, two years from now, and again, not having like the perfect plan, but like within, especially within the context of a year, like how do we need to periodize all this together? Not only for the best results, but for the best health is just so important. Absolutely. Everything in life is phasic. You know, we have seasons for a reason, you know, in both, you know, in terms of our environment, but also in terms of our development as a person, as an athlete, as a, as a client and as a coach. So I never want someone to feel like we're stuck in a particular phase because it's not only physiological. I can optimize a client's physiological, you know, internal health. I can make sure that their blood glucose is in a good place and that they're insulin sensitive throughout the entire building phase and that they're, they're properly training and providing adequate training stimulus. But if they're not mentally in it, because we've been doing this for eight or nine or 10, 12 months, it's going to impact their, not only their physiology, but it's also going to impact their enjoyability of the process. So we can't just, you know, stay stuck. I'm, I'm big on gaining momentum. So I would suggest for anyone out there, if you're doing a building phase, give yourself time. It should be no less than four months, but generally I like about a two to one ratio of the time you spent dieting to the time you spend in a maintenance or a surplus phase. Um, just because you should be spending significantly more time building muscle and accruing and building your body. Those people you see on Instagram and those guys that you look to in the gym that have, you know, guys and girls that have a really solid physique, whether they they're lean or not, they have spent time invested into the process of building muscle and building muscle is a slow process that we need to be patient with. So spend your time and really make the most out of it. And realize that there are going to be times where we get lean and we diet and there's times that we stay in a, a gaming phase, but neither should be something that you stay in perpetually. And I think that's a mistake that, you know, people within this industry make, they'll either chronically stay in a surplus and they do accumulate that excess body fat and they're suffering the effects, the metabolic health effects of insulin resistance, of poor GI health, of loss of appetite, of, you know, things of that sort, or they're on the opposite end of the spectrum and they're the chronic dieter that's always in a state of restriction, both mentally and physically. And they're never building your physique. And every year they're becoming a smaller, just a smaller version of themselves, but not a better version. And that's really, my whole thing is, it's let's focus on quality, not quantity. Let's not just focus on scale weight. Let's focus on the quality of the muscle either being gained or the body fat being lost. It's, it's all about quality over everything. 
I love that, man. So one other question I wanted to ask you before we get into some practical applications. So if you had a client come on board and initially it seemed that they had poor nutrient partitioning, would you take uh, like a particular approach with training? So like often something that I've heard of often is like, hey, we'll do like an eight by like a Granda eight by eight or mm-hmm. something and that will improve nutrient partitioning. Do you do anything like that with clients or is that more or less just let's get into hypertrophy training? So it's going to matter where they're coming to me from. So for instance, if someone, you know, having poor nutrient partition, that's a really broad term, Jeremiah. So I would, you know, I'm really into the nuances. So I'm going to break this down a little bit more specifically. Someone comes to me and their nutrient partitioning, it could be from one of many methods or um, reasons. If someone comes to me and they have excess body fat and it's showing, it's indicating that they have poor nutrient partitioning, I'm going to work on putting them in a fat loss phase uh, first and foremost. And so you know, we're obviously going to put them into a deficit that wouldn't be the best time to put them into a metabolic phase, which is going to be more uh, anaerobically demanding. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. going to be more glycolytic work. So I'm going to keep them in a hypertrophy phase, but it's also going to be based on where are they coming to me at? Is this someone, so for instance, if I have someone that comes to me and they're more uh, strength training focused, it's someone that does powerlifting or strongman, um, or they do Olympic lifting, something of that sort, where they're doing less volume um, you know, they're doing more of lower rep training, more in the strength. I don't want to say rep range, but we, we know one to five, say for instance, and they're also had excess, uh, accumulated body fat and they have poor nutrient partitioning as a result. That's where I've had people come to me that were more of, um, power lifters and I put them more into a hypertrophy training program. So I train, I change their training stimulus and put them more into a glycolytically demanding training stimulus. So they're running through more nutrients. They're increasing nutrient partitioning through extra contractions and I'm putting them into a deficit. So we're losing body fat and we're increasing nutrient partitioning through uh, training. And then I'm also working on the aerobic capacity. Also, I usually find with those individuals that they have really low levels of pain. So I'm going to increase their energy flux. So really what energy flux is, is we're increasing energy being pulled through the system. So think about it like this. You could be in energy balance at many different levels, at many different states. You could be at um, low calories and low amount of output, or you could be on higher calories and higher amount of output and still be in the same level of energy balance. So I could put someone in a deficit at 3,000 calories and have them in a 500-calorie deficit, or I could have them at 2,000 calories and in a 500-calorie deficit just based on the amount of steps that they take per day, aerobic work that we're doing, and their output within training. So I'm going to put them in a higher flux state. So we're moving, we're partitioning nutrients better through higher levels of movement. So that's going to help regulate their appetite better. So there's more, you're going to see me hit on multiple fronts. Training, I'm going to change their training stimulus. So they're going to get, we're going to be adapting to a new stimulus. I'm going to put them in a deficit, lose body fat. I'm also going to help increase nutrient partitioning through, through movements or through excess or extra movement. Also, I'm, I might look at their uh, macronutrient composition. What are they eating? Things of that sort. So I'm, I'm turning very various dials. However, if someone comes to me, they're, they're somewhat lean, they're hypertrophy training, and they're insulin resistant. That's where I'm going to work on more of the back end of things. So I might put them in a metabolic phase or more higher rep work. I wouldn't necessarily do the Gerondo method. I, I had mm-hmm. utilized it in, in the past. Just wasn't something that I really found applicable to too many of my clients personally. However, what I would do is higher rep work, uh, lower rest periods. So I would drive more of that metabolic demand. Uh, we would be activating more. You know, it, it's hard to say because you can't directly activate just one pathway. If mTOR is on, as long as you still have AMK on, you know, the process of training is going to increase AMK because um, you know AMK is essentially an energy uh, 
recognizing molecule. So when you have, you're depleting energy. So through the process of, you know, running through nutrients, running through ATP while you're training, you're going to be activating MK. Um, but I'm going to put them in higher rep work. I'm really going to increase the, the aerobic demand on their body. And I might utilize uh, extra cardio and things of that sort to really get them into a place where it's not really body fat that I'm trying to target because they're at a good body fat percentage, but I have to increase their insulin sensitivity. From there, I'm going to be looking at their macronutrient distribution. I'm going to be looking at other factors within their lifestyle for that lean individual where I'm looking at, you know, on the outside, we would look at that person and we would say, um, you know, they should be metabolically healthy. They should have great nutrient partitioning, but for some reason, their body's not uptaking the cells. So I might look at their, their macronutrient distribution. Maybe they were over consuming certain nutrients. They were in it, calorie excess, but they're, they're just someone that maintains a low level of body fat. So maybe I'll pull back on some of their macronutrients, or maybe they were eating uh, heavy amounts of saturated fats, which we've seen in overfeeding trials to induce insulin resistance at a much higher rate than poly and monounsaturated fats. So I might just change the distribution of their fat content. Um, or for instance, there are overfeeding trials done with high fructose corn syrup compared to glucose. And when done with overfeeding, we see that high fructose corn syrup induces insulin resistance at a much higher rate than glucose itself. So these are just different manipulations. So if someone's taking fruit juice or, or sodas and stuff, and you know, that's usually not our clientele, but you never know what someone's doing on the back end. They're just not realizing they're trying to get calories in, they're trying to build muscle and they're slamming, you know, 7-Eleven or, you know, 7-Ups uh, post-workout and not realizing the deleterious effects. So I'm looking at every area, but also other aspects that I didn't really hit on here was the stress management and the sleep aspect because we know those are two components that can drastically impact insulin sensitivity and thus nutrient partitioning. So I'm looking at many factors within that person's lifestyle and I'm trying to customize it for them. So really what it comes down to is, A, where's their body composition at? B, what are they doing currently? What does your training look like now? When you're, if, if I always try to get across to my clients, often what you're doing now is what's yielding the results that you're getting and you've been getting. So often, don't be scared of it, but often we have to try something that's different than what you've been doing to get a different result. And, you know, it, there's that old expression that if you continue doing the same thing, you'll continue to getting the same result. So it's also often doing something that's different. So for the chronic dieter, it's putting them at energy balance or into a maintenance phase or into a primer phase. It's doing something different that their body will now have to adapt to and it'll change its um, you know, inputs and outputs as a result. So it's really looking at where are they at currently and where do we need to get them? Absolutely. Um, I think you fully answered that question. I really appreciate all the nuance in there as well, because that's a pretty general question, but essentially it very much depends on where they're coming from and what their current body fat is, how they're managing stress, how they're recovering, et cetera. So past everything you broke down there, are there any other practical applications that you want the listener to take away from this conversation? Absolutely. So just to tie things in a bow, essentially, um, if you guys were able to get through all my mumbo jumbo and my nuanced uh, discussions and deep dives and stuff, really what my whole thing is, I'm trying to not only break down research and have people, you know, I'm big into the fact that I believe that when you're educated about a topic and you truly understand it, you're going to be able to apply it better. So I always like to start with the education, but I do like to wrap things up with practical applications. So when I have people come to me and they ask me that age-old question, should I cut or should I bolt? And believe me, this is something I get on my Instagram DMs quite often on my Q&A questions. And it's, it's really hard to uh, be objective with someone. So I, you know, in terms of, I don't know where they're coming from and I am such a nuanced person. And really with my coaching, yeah. 
I have an extensive check-in form or um, intake form and things of that sort. But if I was to give broad-based generalities, I would say this. If you're a male who's between 8 to 15% body fat, you still have some runway so you can afford to enter a building phase. However, once you get between, say, 18% and 20% body fat, now, mind you, it's going to be dependent on where your body fat settling point is, where you're comfortable, what your metabolic markers are, also what you're doing, what calorie um, you know, level you're at. However, just on a broad-based perspective, once you get between 18 to 20% body fat, I'd suggest going into either a mini cut or a fat loss phase just to be able to mitigate and limit the deleterious effects of getting to those higher ends of body fat. Um, however, if you're a female between 18 to say 26% body fat, you're more than welcome to enter a building phase. I would say once you get over the 30% body or body fat percentage mark, I'd suggest going into a mini cut or a fat loss phase as well. Although I will note, I, I do want to make this clear. Um, you know, women are much less susceptible to adding visceral body fat, and they also have better metabolic health at higher body fat percentages than males can get away with. So they also, they, if you notice, women predominantly store fat in their hips and thighs. That's both, um, you know, we see that within the menstrual cycle uh, due to progesterone. They store things more in that area. That's also why it's that they're stubborn body fat, and they tend to get leaner in the abdomen before guys do in terms of like a fat loss phase. Uh, but they tend to store less deleterious body fat. More of their fat is done from more of their fat storage is more of a survival mechanism for in the case that they get pregnant. So we, you know, just take that into consideration. Women, you guys got a little bit more leeway. You know, over 30% body fat, I'd suggest starting to, to lean things out. But we also have to keep in mind that these are body fat ranges and recommendations. Um, but exact body fat percentages, first of all, are really difficult to gauge and often inaccurate even when you're using more advanced methods such as a DEXA or a BIA. So it's not only important to you know, use objective uh, measurements of one's body fat percentage, but also use subjective measurements as well. So usually what I'll do is to determine the best course of action going forward for a client, I'm looking at not only their body, you know, their body composition, but I'm also looking at their weekly uh, check-in photos and their subjective metrics and biofeedback. If someone looks like they're 18% body fat, where we get that reading, but they're starting to feel sluggish. They're starting to lose pumps in the gym. Um, they're starting to feel lethargic, uh, especially after meals. If I'm seeing indices of insulin resistance, which I would be checking on the back end because I do check blood glucose and, and a lot of blood work. But guys, if you see that, if you see that you're starting to get to a point in your building phase where you're lethargic or you're feeling sluggish, you're losing pumps in the gym, it's, it's a sign that you're starting to get into that insulin resistant phase and your cells aren't uptaking glucose as effectively. So that's just a warning sign that, hey, I might be 18% body fat on this dex or I might be 17% body fat but it might be time to resensitize myself. And it might be time to do a, a, a quick four to six week mini cut, shave off some body fat, get myself more sensitized from an insulin sensitivity perspective. I'll regain my appetite. I'll increase my energy levels and then I'll be able to go back at it. So just keep that in mind. Always be willing to assess feedback on a week to week basis and never get too stuck in, in one you know um, manner or one mindset. Love it, man. All such... I love how you bridged the gap between all the science and the actual application to the listener. I feel like there's so many takeaways from this episode. I know I'm definitely going to go back and re-listen to this. Um, before I let you go, dude, will you let everybody know just where they can find you and anything at all you have going on that you'd like to plug? Absolutely. Yeah, honestly, uh, I never like plugging things. I've never That's never been big for me, but I will <laughs> say that I have a, I have a um, seminar coming up that you will be attending. But it's called the physique education. 
Yep. Uh, the Physique Education Collective. Uh, this is going to be out in Dallas, Texas, uh, the weekend of the 28th through the 30th of January. Uh, I'm not sure when this podcast in particular will go up, but guys, uh, if you are interested in hearing a great um, you know, lineup of guests, we're talking Lauren Connolly, Jace, you know, IFB Pro Jason Theobald, a top Olympian, John Jewett, Austin Stout, uh, Jeff Sue, Jeff Black. Uh, we have a great lineup. I'm going to be speaking there. I'm very blessed to have been um, asked to be a presenter at that conference. I will be talking about high energy flux and how it applies to fat loss maintenance because we don't have a dieting problem in our society. You know, dieting's hard, but it's really the fat loss maintenance uh, aspect that's really difficult. So I will be talking about a manner and a method that I've been using for quite a long time to help clients maintain a lean, healthy physique, uh, which is really my, my intention and one of my focuses. So that's one thing. And then anything else, guys, um, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at brandedecruz underscore or uh, at bdecruzfitness at gmail.com. But other than that, Jeremiah, I cannot wait to see you, my man. Uh, very much looking forward to finally meeting you in person after all these podcasts and these calls that we've had uh, and meeting the rest of the team as well. And uh, I appreciate you having me on. Of course, dude. It is always a pleasure. I will link all that up in the show notes. And again, man, thank you for being here. Absolutely.